I Read Comics, Episode 8. Yes, it's another comics podcast, and the big difference is, I'm doing it, and I'm a girl. That's right, a girl that reads comics. My name is Lena Taylor, and I read comics. I read comics? Whatever happened to that show? I remember that podcast. It was really good, and then it went away. Okay, you can stop now. Here's what happened. Last weekend, I just did something bad to my back, which meant I spent the rest of the weekend lying on the floor. So the bad thing was that I spent the weekend lying on the floor. The good thing was that I spent the weekend lying on the floor reading comic books, so I got caught up on a lot of stuff. So I've got loads of things to talk about. I wanted to say one other thing, and this is in the way of a public service announcement, I guess. There are other women who listen to this show. I know like two of them in my fan base of 10, probably. So here's a little warning for you. If you go to the store and you get in the checkout line with the the geek guy, the young geek guy there, and you're buying your Supergirl underwear, it will take you twice as long to check out as it would with any other checker. This is what happened to me today. Because your checker will fall all over himself and drop stuff on the floor, and then he'll try to chat you up. And it will just take an infinitely long time. So just remember that. Um, and Geek Boy from Target, if you're the the guy who checked me out and you're listening to this right now, you know, uh, props to you for trying, definitely. It, it, was, it was a good try, a really good try. So let's just take a quick music break. Oh, and let me say some other administrative stuff because I always forget to say this stuff. The website is ireadcomics.blogspot.com. My email address, if you want to send me email, is my first name, Lena, L-E-N-E, at troubledscience.com. And Troubled Science is my website, and there's a lot of fiction there and some other snarky stuff. And I haven't updated it in a while just because I haven't written anything really new in a while. But if you want to go there and take a look, that would be swell, too. I'm going to try to post some more stuff to the I Read Comics blog at Blogspot, Um, maybe some interesting pictures. In fact, I just took a picture today of this really cool piece of Lord of the Rings swag that I got when I was up at Skywalker Ranch last week. They gave it to me as a little gift, and it was just really cool, and I'm pretty sure it's a collectible that you can't buy. It was um, given out at the premiere of the third movie uh, in certain cities um, by Weta, and they created this, and it's a little replica of the Towers of the Teeth that hold pieces of actual film in between them. And it looks really cool, and I was glad to get it. So um, we'll come back in a minute with all of the stuff that we need to talk about. actually have a pile next to the microphone, so I'm going to pick things up off the pile. 
The first thing is a book, an actual novel. I talked about this a little bit on the other show, the Star Trek show that I do called Look at His Butt, the Shatner show. But I wanted to talk about it more here because um, there's more to say about it from the comic side than there is from the Star Trek side. So the book's called Planet X, and it's a crossover novel between Star Trek Next Generation and X-Men, written by Michael, J. Fried- Michael Jan Friedman, sorry, who is a prolific Trek author and has also written comic books. And, you know, frankly, before I read this book, I hadn't heard of him. So I guess that makes me a bad Trekkie or, or a bad comic fan or something. Um, it was published in 1998, and I'll tell you the X-Men that it features so that you could know. Um, the X-Men of that time were Storm, Wolverine, of course, like they could do a book without Wolverine, uh, Nightcrawler, oh, um, Archangel, and who else? I have to actually look in the book to remember because it's been a little while since... Oh, Shadowcat. Oh, and Colossus. So that was the team at that time. Um, The plot of the book is pretty forgettable. Um, The X-Men suddenly appear in the Star Trek universe due to something that happened in the comic book that came before this book, which I don't have, um, except that a fan very nicely offered to send it to me. So I'm going to get to read it, and I'll talk about it when I get it. But I hadn't read it when I started reading this book, so the whole explanation of how the X-Men came to be in the TNG century made no sense to me whatsoever. It somehow involved a thing called a time hook, which I'm thinking is one of those things that they used to pull you off stage when you've been on too long and you're a bad act, like in the Warner Brothers cartoons. So... That's probably wrong. Um, X-Men show up. They help Picard and company uh, deal with a planet where there's a bunch of people who have been turned into mutants. Hey, that sounds really familiar. In fact, I'll read you from the back cover of this. It says, um, on the planet, I guess it's pronounced um, Zaldia. It's X-H-A-L-D-I-A. So I'm thinking Zaldia. Exaldia? Zaldia. Ordinary men and women are mutating into bizarre creatures with extraordinary powers, but is this a momentous evolutionary leap or an unparalleled catastrophe? The very fabric of Zaldian society is threatened, as fear and prejudice divide the transformed from their own kin. What an original plotline! I've never heard that before. Uh, So, of course, the X-Men show up to deal with this because they are so intimately familiar with this situation. And they do, and they solve it, and bad guys show up at the end and get their asses kicked, and then everybody's happy. Um, There is a a little thing at the end, which I'll I'll be sure to mention about um, what gets offered to the X-Men before they go back to their time. Of course, they do go back to their time. So, as it's... It's a typical Trek book in that the reset button gets pressed at the end and everything is exactly the same as it was when it first started, so there's no big surprises. The writing is adequate. It's not great. There are no really good turns of phrase. There are some really bad uh, grammatical errors uh, and and a few spelling errors, I think. I always notice those things. Um, And some really annoying devices, like one of the mutants on the, the planet Zaldia is a woman who can move really fast, not quite like the Flash. Um, the, like the X-Men, the mutants can't turn their powers off, so when she moves, she always moves fast. And when she talks, she speaks really quickly, and the author, Michael Jan Friedman, chose to convey this by running all her words together. So when you look at what she's saying, in quotes, all of the words appear with no spaces between them. And it's really hard to read that. Okay, I understand what you're trying to do, but it gave me a headache trying to read what she was saying. The The big flaw in this book, 
is that you never get inside the characters' heads. You do for the TNG characters a little bit, especially Picard, because he's always thinking about stuff. You know, he's like the anti-Kirk, right? He just thinks and thinks and thinks. And you kind of know what's going on. Plus, Picard is sort of the, the default exposition guy. So you find out all the background based on what he's thinking or what he's saying to other people. A role that was on the show, usually given to Data or Geordi, but not in this book. But for the, for the X-Men... <laughs> They're comic book characters, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean that in the way that people talk about something being comic booky, that is not having a lot of depth. And I don't mean to imply that comic books don't have depth, but when people think people who are not comic book fans think about comic books, they think about um, the stupid comic books of say the '60s or the '70s when the, you know DC comics were totally loopy and there was no reason to it, and the characters were completely flat, they had no development, no emotional background. You didn't know really what their true backstories were. They did things for no reason, and that's how the X Men come off in this book, and that's really a shame. You you get to see their empathy for these new mutants on the the planet, but only because of the fact that they're mutants. They they don't relate to it personally. Um, they they just come off as stand-ins. They could be anybody. They don't need to be the X-Men. They could have been any group of aliens or mutants that somebody created originally an author in the Star Trek universe. And that's really disappointing because I think they could have done a lot more with it. They could have made the, whatever's special about the X-Men be in the book and have them interact with the Trek characters, and that could have been great. And I think they really missed a chance to do that. You know, they're there, they use their powers, they they joke, you know, of course Wolverine buddies up with Worf, and they go into the hollow deck and kick the asses of a, a bunch of people that Worf conjures up, and then Wolverine conjures up, ha-ha, you know, they're, they're brothers in arms and like that. And then there's the obligatory um, semi-romance between Storm and Picard, although they never actually consummate it, which, if you ask me, is a bit of a cheat. And there's some other stuff. There's only one really interesting character development thing, and that's between um, Archangel and Troy, and Crusher to a certain extent. Interesting with women that that happens, where you do get to see a little bit of what's going on in his mind. And throughout the whole book, he's actually the most interesting character because he acts like an arrogant bastard and nobody really likes him. Um, he's disruptive on purpose and he's always testing people's limits. Of course, he comes through in the end, but that makes him really, really interesting. Um, oh, I forgot, Banshee is in this too. And his character is like, you know, he's like a... Scotty. He's he's the, the requisite uh, or the obligatory uh, British Isles guy who sings Irish songs. And, you know, they could have done something with him. I, I know, it's only a Star Trek book. It's one of 8,000 Star Trek books that came out that year. And they don't spend very much time or money on it. But, boy, it sure is a shame that this wasn't a better book. I, I'm kind of sad about that. Um, so the thing that happens at the end is that Crusher... Um, because of the amazing technology in the TNG universe, is able to offer the X-Men the chance to uh, lose their powers for good. And she says, I can cure you, all of you, and make you normal. And they refuse, of course. But I, I just, you know, I thought about that as I was reading it, and I was like, huh, that's interesting. I wonder if they did that because they felt they had to, 
Um, like technology in the TNG century is so advanced that of course that they would find a solution to it, or was it supposed to be a really lame attempt at character development to say, oh, well, of course the X-Men realize that their powers are for good and they have a responsibility to planet Earth and they have to defeat the bad guys and blah-de-blah like that. It was a little out of place, I thought, although it was introduced early on because Crusher is trying to find uh, something to change the mutants who are down on the planet, and in fact she does, uh, and some of them change and some of them don't, so some of them choose to stay mutants. There's a little scene at the end where Q appears with the Watcher, and that's fairly amusing. Uh, It's a nice visual image of the two of them together, which I pretty much liked. There was one other thing in the book that um, was supposed to be funny but totally wasn't, which was that there are three red shirts uh, named Kirby, Lee, and Ditko. <laughs> and for no reason, I mean, other than that it's supposed to be a tribute to Kirby, Lee, and Ditko. Um, but the editing is so bad that the one that's supposed to be named Lee is not always named Lee. It's like he wrote it with a different character's name first, Wayne. And in this scene, which lasts about... Um, two pages or so, the character's name is sometimes Wayne and sometimes Lee. So I couldn't tell whether um, he had originally wanted to call him Wayne and then later on got the bright idea of calling him, oh, let's call them Kirby Lee and Ditko, or whether um, he had decided it at first and then somebody went in and changed it. It doesn't matter. It was just a bad mistake. So on the whole, I can't really recommend this book unless you've got about two hours to kill to read it, and then it would be fairly amusing. When I get the comic books, I will definitely read them and report back on them at that time. Schadenfreude. That's a big word. Schadenfreude is a German word that means when you take pleasure in somebody else's misery. And it's the name of the something old for this podcast. Um, It's a comic that came out in uh, (laughs) spring 2003. And I... I'm reading it now because I was lying on the floor last weekend, but because uh, Ginger over at uh, the Lincoln Heights Literary Society 
my fabulous editor and composer of the wonderful music that accompanies this show, sent me a whole pile of comics by a guy named Carl Christian, and this is one of the books that he puts out. We always see Carl at Comic-Con and at Ape, and he's always given us stuff, and we've reviewed some of it over at um, the, the online review journal for the Lincoln Heights Literary Society. So now I've finally got my hands on this. Um, next time I'll talk about the other comics, which are a whole series called Angst Boy, and this particular comic is a, a book that is about one of the minor characters in Angst Boy, whose name is Lord Byron. <clears throat> I'll tell you a little bit more about him in a second. This this comic, I love this comic. It's great, for one thing. Um, it's One of the reasons I love it is because it reminds me of the early days of zines. So it's clear that Carl Christian put this together by going to Kinko's and Xeroxing it and then stapling it together. The cover is really nice and the paper quality is good, but it really has that homemade look, and I sure love that. Um, it costs three fifty, and you can still get them from Carl. He doesn't have a website as far as I can tell, but he does have an email address, and uh, he has a live journal, so I'll put all that in the show notes in case you want to get hold of this thing. And if you end up going to comic book conventions on, I'm pretty sure, just the West Coast, you'll probably run into him. So Schadenforda is about Lord Byron. Now, he's not the Lord Byron. I think, and I say I think, because there's some ambiguity about the character. I think he's like this 17-year-old kid who thinks he's a vampire. He's drawn, he kind of, you know what he looks like? He looks like Beaker from The Muppet Show. He looks exactly like Beaker, um, except um, his, he's not, his eyes aren't as big and his mouth doesn't turn down at the corners. But he has that same shaped head and he's got a big tuft of hair at the top of his head. The story is supposed to be contemporary, but he acts and dresses like it's 1986 or something. So Lord Byron is wanting so bad to be a dark guy. He wants to be a goth, and he wants to be a vampire, and he, he wants to be um, mad, bad, and dangerous, as he keeps saying about himself constantly to everyone he meets. And this book is 13 hours with Lord Byron, so it's his day <clears throat> that starts in 2 o'clock in the afternoon and goes to about 3 o'clock in the morning, and it's all the things that he does. And it is schadenfreude, because you look at him, and he's so pathetic in trying to be this dark spooky guy and yet he's like a 17 year old guy with freckles so this is the kind of <laughs> stuff that he gets so here's how it opens he's at the video store and of course the video store guy is like this mean dude with a goatee and a ring through his nose and byron says excuse me do you have faces of death three i want to see it for that part where they hammer the monkey's skull and scoop out its brains with a blunt spoon so the video store guy goes, oh, put down your email and we'll let you know when it comes in. And then Byron says, okay, it's darkitydarkguy at darkoubliette-pit.com. <laughs> so yeah, darkitydarkguy. That's how hard he's trying. So uh, he finally gets a copy of, um, he's asking for severed heads, swollen bodies, and the, the video store guy is now fed up with him and goes to take a look and brings back a tape. And in the meantime, a nun comes in and is about to ask him something, and he totally freaks out and runs out of the store. It turns out the nun only wanted to ask him for a pen. But he's so self-absorbed with his darkity darkness that he doesn't even notice. And then when he gets home, he realizes that the video store guy gave him um, Pippi Longstockings at Pirate Cove. So what else happens? He tries to pierce his own nose, and that's a huge disaster, and there's blood all over the place. Um, 
he he thinks about killing himself, but then that's no fun anymore. He tries to um, experiment with the dark eyes, and when Satan shows up, he's sort of like a Santa Claus in reverse and says, if you stop bothering me, I'll give you whatever you want. Um, so his day just goes on with weird things happening, all of his own doing. Um, it's generally really funny, except for one panel that was even a little disturbing, and this is where I say... I don't, this is where the ambiguity comes in. So for most of the time, Byron's dressed in, um, it looks like a, a kind of a, a tuxedo-y suit with a high collar and like a little cravat with maybe a stick pin in it or something. But then other times when we see him, he's wearing a t-shirt and it looks like he's at home. So he's doing this whole trying to pierce his nose thing and he's at home and um, there's blood coming out of his face and he's going, my own nasal stigmata, why must this be? And then the door opens, and you see an adult figure. can't really tell who it is, because you can't see the face or the head, holding a bottle. And the character says, What are you doing in here? Can't you simply sit quietly? You are bothering Mommy during her drinking time. For Christ's sake, be quiet. And then that's kind of it. And that's where it stops being schadenfreude, and where it starts being actually sad. So... Even though you're laughing at Byron, it really twists your heartstrings to see that this is his life. And I guess you start to see why he's totally escaped into this fantasy character that he has of being Lord Byron. Um, you know, the cool guy who has all the chicks hanging all over him because he's so darkity dark and evil and all the rest of that. So his day goes on and he ends up at a bar. And I'm guessing that he really is at a bar, although... Um, what he's imagining clearly isn't happening, so he's thinking he's the life of the party. He thinks, I rule here. And he walks in, and everybody goes, ah, oh, Byron's here, Byron's here. He doesn't drink. He, he gets a, a virgin Bloody Mary, um, and uh, he, he makes up some crazy stories about how he killed somebody at cards, saying, I'm mad, bad, and dangerous. And the, the chicks dig him, and... <laughs> He says to a girl um, who, who's talking about the music, The night is still young. Dance for me, my dark child of the slightly darker places. And he's got a cigarette on a, in a holder, kind of Hunter Thompson-ish. And there's a little sign pointing to it that says candy cigarette. So all this goes on for a while. And then at the very end, after he's impressing everyone, they're all laughing at him. It cuts to a panel of him sitting in his bedroom, wearing his T-shirt, saying, I'm so lonely. So then I wonder, wow, is he even out at the nightclub, or is that whole thing just in his head? And I'm not sure. But again, that's where it stops being schadenfreude, and it starts really being, um, oh my god, I feel really bad for this guy. So then it ends up with this very, very funny short story, which is illustrated by um, just a couple of pictures that go with it. And he tries to pick up a girl in a bar, and it just fails disastrously. Um, they're talking to each other, and she says, uh, <laughs> you know, what's going on and uh, what do you do for fun and and are you seeing anybody? And, and she says, the girl he's trying to pick up who um, is very skeptical of his says, uh, I'll play this game. It's been a long while. I left my boyfriend. I found out he was a big cokehead. So <clears throat> Byron then says, I'm a Pepsi man myself. But I used to have quite a problem with that white devil, in fact. Sometimes I'd snort my way through three or four packs of equal, or even the dread sweet and low, the demon cane, the sweetened curse of Adam's slaughter, the dreaded sugar rush flowing through your veins, propelling you, manic activity, the grained dust of pixie sticks. I'd be bouncing off walls for hours. And then she says, 
You are very unique and special in that this has to be the worst attempt anyone has ever tried to pick me up. And then he's kind of left alone at the end. So it's a it's a really good comic. The art is, uh, of course, it's black and white, as I was saying, because Carl obviously um, Xeroxed this over at Kinko's. And um, it's it's very stylized and um, in that indie way. I think it, it's a very indie-looking comic. But it's good, and there's a lot to read in it. I've read it through several times, and I'll probably read it through several more. And, you know, support those indie comics. So I can definitely recommend Schadenfreude. I was just looking around online to see if there were other copies of it, because I read in an interview, Carl said he wanted to do more with um, Byron's character, but I'm not seeing anything. So if I find more information about Lord Byron, I will certainly let you know. And then the next time uh, I'm talking about something old, I will talk about all of the Angst Boy comics, because those are good, too. something new. This was in today's newspaper, um, today being September 2nd, and it's um, in the San Francisco Chronicle. I will put in a link to it, and it's an article about the new Nancy Drew books. Now, of course, I'm a big Nancy Drew fan. I was when I was growing up and read them all and got a bunch of first editions. This is about the Nancy Drew graphic novels, which I had forgotten about. I actually saw them when we were at Comic-Con this year, and then I went, oh yeah, they're doing them, and they're doing them like manga. So they're not uh, books with illustrations. They're actually graphic novels, very much in the manga style. And this is an article about the woman who draws them. Um, her name is Sho, Sho Murase, I think. She looks Japanese, although she grew up in Barcelona, and I'm guessing her last name is Japanese. So these books are published... <coughs> excuse me. Um, she works for Mavericks Animation Studios, and they're the ones who are publishing this. Um... It's being published by a company called Paper Cuts. And let me just say, in the interest of full disclosure, when we were at Comic-Con, Ginger and I were walking around, and we went by the booth where these were, and I'm pretty sure it was a Paper Cuts booth and not a Mavericks Animation booth. And I was very interested and looked at them. And the woman who was at that booth, I think it was a woman, was so mean to me, like, for no particular reason, you know. I gave her my card and said, you know, we, we write these reviews, and if you have any review copies, we'd love to get one, or samples, or like a flyer that tells us about the books, and she wouldn't give me a goddamn thing. So why are you having a booth if you're not even going to be nice to the people who come up to you? Anyway, I just wanted to get that out of the way. But that's not why I'm talking about this, although I'm glad I got to mention it. I'm talking about this because in the newspaper article, there is a picture of the cover of an old Nancy Drew book. There are the covers of the new Nancy Drew books. And then, you can hear me turning the pages, there's actually an illustration from one of the books. So this is from uh, Nancy Drew, the Demon of River Heights. That sounds cool, doesn't it? And it's Nancy with her buds talking and just uh, discussing whatever's going on. 
And the very first thing I notice about this picture of Nancy Drew, okay, she's drawn very much manga style, so it's a slightly stylized thing, is that she has the most prominent breasts imaginable, and her nipples are really erect, and you can see them right through the sweater. Somehow, I don't think this is appropriate. I'm trying to remember when I was reading Nancy Drew books, which was when I was like 9 or 10 years old. What would that have meant to me at that age? Seeing Nancy Drew with these really prominent tits right out there and her nipples all erect, like she's a manga sex babe? Is that right? Maybe they're aiming them at someone else. I don't know, but I'm really not too happy about that. Um... I don't know if they're upping the content of the actual Nancy Drew books. I mean, there was never anything called The Demon of River Heights when I was reading them. It was all about, you know, the mystery of the clock in the closet or something. And yeah, I know, you know, they're trying to update her and make her really strong and feminine and smart, which she always was. You know, that was the great thing about Nancy Drew was that she got out there and she did things in her little fliver and she had her, her good friends, Beth and George the Lesbian and, you know... She had Ned Nickerson, but he was basically a stooge. She never did anything with him. He was so boring. It was so much more fun to be Nancy Drew because you got to wear great clothes and solve mysteries, and you had a rich dad and a housekeeper. So, like, what the hell did you have to do with your time? Nothing. Solve mysteries. It was a great life. Um, so, yeah, Nancy Drew's breasts. Not really happy about that. Now, I also want to say, this is interesting. I went online to the uh, online version of the San Francisco Chronicle, which is called sfgate.com, and this particular illustration was not there. And I don't know why that is, because they're usually quite good about including everything in the printed version and the online version. So I think I'm going to have to scan this so everybody can see what I am talking about with the breasts of Nancy Drew. So... I would like to get a copy of this and actually read it and review it and talk about the content rather than focusing on the art. Um, the art, by the way, looks really good. It doesn't look bad at all. It's very nicely drawn and it's beautifully colored. Um, this panel, you know, it's reproduced in a newspaper, so it's on crappy newsprint and the color separation is, is bad, but it looks really, really nice. It's got some of that um, photo collage stuff, so they're outside and the background is supposed to be kind of a sunset sky and it's clearly a photograph it looks like a photograph that's been put in the back there although maybe that's just um the art being good but it looks like actual photograph trees so again very manga style um and i would like to know if they're any good but given the way the people at paper cuts treated us at comic-con i don't know if i really want to buy one so I'll have to see. I'll have to make up my mind about it. Who knows? We might get it from somewhere else. If anybody out there actually knows anything about these, I would really like to know what you think. It also says here that they are doing a Hardy Boys manga comic as well, and that should be very interesting. Um, I'm wondering if they're going to make it a little more uh, violent, maybe? I don't know. There were. I actually went to the Paper Cuts site and I looked, and there were a couple other panels of Nancy Drew reproduced there, and they, they looked pretty action-packed, although not particularly violent. So I'm wondering if the Hardy Boys version is going to be um, really violent. Um, so, I don't know. What do you all think about that? Does Nancy Drew really need to have such perky breasts, and should they be right out there? And who's reading these books anyway? Is it adults who are there reading it for the, the camp and manga value, or is it really still aimed at those 9- to 10-year-old girls? I don't know. I have to wonder about it, but um, I could do without the breasts. 
To wrap things up for this time, I got two more things to talk about. One is another podcast that I really enjoy, and that is called Comics Cast, and that's spelled with two K's, one for comics, one for cast. And you can either check it out at the website, which is comicscast.blogspot.com, and you can also get it on iTunes at Comics Cast. And when you type it in, make sure there's no space between comics and cast, because if there is, you won't find it. But if you put it in there, you'll see it. Comics Cast is a show done by Bruce Rosenberger, who is um, mainly dedicating his show to small press. And Bruce has made me insanely jealous for two reasons. One is that he's going to the Small Press Expo, which is held in Maryland every year. And I am really dying to go to that, but it's kind of too far away to justify a whole trip out there when there's so much on this coast. And the other reason I'm jealous is that Bruce got to be a guest on Comic Geek Speak in person. And uh, that was a great show, and he was really wonderful there. So, <clears throat> excuse me, um, go and take a listen to Bruce's shows. They're they're pretty small. He has talked about um, a lot of Kirby stuff because this show actually grew out of a another private podcast that he was doing that was specifically devoted to Jack Kirby. But um, he covers a lot of really nice small press and independent stuff, which is good. It's things that don't generally get talked about. And he mentions some mainstream things as well. And he's really fun to listen to and really knows what he's talking about. So I highly recommend Comics Cast. And the last thing on my mind was in relation to another discussion on Comic Geek Speak, of course, about comic shops. And it got me to thinking about the whole concept of a comic book shop, which is very much like other types of specialty shops, like record stores, for example, or even bookstores to a certain extent, but much more niche than that. Um, and I have some experience with retail. Before I came out to California, I used to run a record store, an independent record store. And we competed with all of the big record stores. And the reason that people came to us was because we could get things that nobody else could and because we knew a lot about what was in the store and what was stocked there. But it was hard. It was really hard to make ends meet. And I, the store eventually went out of business after I stopped working there because they just couldn't keep up with two things, the bigger stores where you can get kind of every damn thing that you want to and, of course, the Internet where you can buy whatever you want. And I think... Both of those things have been the death of a lot of independent uh, record stores, with a few exceptions. But if you don't actually buy vinyl, you can get pretty much anything you want to on the Internet. So why go to a, a record store? Um, it's kind of the same for comic books, I think. And I'm sure that a lot of independent stores have closed. Well, I mean, there are nothing but independent stores unless you're part of... Uh, a bigger chain if you're like the comic book division of Barnes & Noble or, uh, you know, Borders or something like that. But why would people go to a comic book store? Well, there's two reasons. One is you can get stuff that you can't get anywhere else and you want to talk to the people who work there because they know what they're doing. And the kind of people who would do that are a pretty specialized group. And it kind of remains to be seen whether that kind of business will keep comic book stores running up and running and able to turn a profit enough that they can keep doing it. A lot of comic book stores that I know, um, the one that I used to go to a lot when I lived in uh, closer to Berkeley called Comic Relief, which is a great store, ended up devoting a lot more shelf space to videos and DVDs, especially anime stuff, and a lot more collectibles because I think the profit margin on that stuff is like way higher and people are actually willing to plunk down 70 or 80 bucks for, you know, Gigantor videos that you can't get anywhere else. And that's the kind of stuff that they sold an awful lot of. 
So I thought about this and I thought, well, how could, what could you do? What could be like one thing that you could do to make it more appealing for people to actually get off their asses and go to the comic book store instead of just ordering stuff online all the time? Um, so here's an idea which I put out there and I'm eager to know if anybody thinks this is actually a good idea. Why not use comic book stores as kind of a, a place where you pick up orders, like a drop place? So what you would do as a customer is you'd go online, not to a distributor. You would go to the Marvel site or the D, the DC site or the Fantagraphics site or, you know, whoever, Dark Horse site. You place your order online, and rather than, rather than having them ship it to your house, they ship it to the comic book store. And then you go to the comic book store to pick it up. And in exchange for the fact that you're not having it, having it shipped to your house, it's probably cheaper on the shipping because chances are they're pulling and packing a whole bunch of stuff to send to that comic book store at the same time. So the shipping is going to be cheaper for them anyway, I think. If I'm totally off on this stuff, somebody tell me. But I'm, again, working from my knowledge of when I worked at the record store, how this might actually work. And the benefit is twofold. You get to pick up all your stuff in one place at one time. You know it's going to be there. You don't have to worry about somebody stealing it off your porch. And when you go, you can then browse through the new stuff that you don't know about and pick up things at the same time. So it it seems like a win-win situation. The comic book store itself would get some kind of kickback probably from having the stuff there for you to pick it up. Um, and it would be easier for them because they would have the stuff and it would be marked for you and uh, it would be nice and pristine when you got it. You know, you wouldn't have to dig through bins to get it. And it would encourage you just to keep coming back on a regular basis because your comics would come in on a certain day and then you would go down there and you'd pick them all up. Anyway, just an idea. I wonder if it would work. Um, I really wonder about the future of comic book shops and whether they can continue to make it. You know, in this area where I live in, in uh, near San Francisco, a lot of independent bookstores are closing for those very reasons. Uh, a big one down in uh, the South Bay called Kepler's, which has been around since 1955, just closed its doors because they just couldn't make ends meet, and it's really sad when that happens. Um, the few comic book stores in my area are really focused on the stuff and not the books. They have books, but it's all t-shirts and toys and all this other stuff and Yu-Gi-Oh cards and things like that. And I, I have to say this, the stores in my area, I don't want to get onto this topic, but are totally not welcoming to women at all. Um, the times I've been in there, I, I totally felt like uh, I was about to be stalked by someone. So that makes me not want to go in there. And, you know, it's a big pain in the ass for me to have to go all the way into Berkeley just to buy comic books. So I'm guilty of it, too. I buy a lot of stuff online because it's just easier for me to do that. So I don't know. If there was a good store near me where I could order stuff and then go pick it up and browse through some new things, I think I might actually like to do that. So why don't you guys think about that? And um, if you email me or leave comments on the blog, then we can continue this discussion. So and until next time, you guys think about that. <laughs>